Please stand for a reading of God's word. We will be reading Mark chapter 14, um, chapter 13, verses 24 through 31. That is located on page 496 in the blue Bibles that are in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible, please take that home, that Bible home as a gift to you. Mark 13, 24 through 31. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, You know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all the things, all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word. Well, let's pray over what we heard. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it gives us, the assurance that it gives us that you are Lord over all of history, God. That not a sparrow falls, you said, without the knowledge of your Father. And you said, how much more value are you than many sparrows? And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you that... All of our days have been numbered, that you have numbered them all for us from the beginning to the end. And Lord, you prove that in the way that you predicted these things and the way that they came to pass and the way that every promise of the scripture proves true and is the, and it, it, it's got everything. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so we thank you for that, Lord. God, I pray that as we face our own versions of tribulation, God, that we would not forget what you have said and what you have done in this passage. And God, the, the, the historical fulfillment of it so that we will be diligent to place our trust in you more diligently, more greatly, God, that we would lean into you and trust you, God, with our, our past, our present, our future, Lord. And so, God, we, we ask that you would help us with this. Lord, I pray that you would just enable us to hear, to, to, to taste and see from these words that the Lord is good. I pray that you would just enable me to be able to preach uh, authoritatively and clearly, Lord God, and, and God taking into account my own weaknesses, the weaknesses of my hearers, Lord, so that we can find grace and compassion at the feet of Christ. And so I thank you for all of this. I thank you for this people. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So um, today is Palm Sunday. And so what that reminds us of is that Christ entered Jerusalem, uh, which we studied back in Mark 11, two chapters ago. And we saw that throughout chapter 11, chapter 12, 
that he had multiple confrontations with the ruling authorities of Jerusalem. He had ridden into Jerusalem, according to Old Testament prophecy, as their king, and he was sitting now uh, in his kingly role as their judge. He had he had um, had many confrontations. We've talked about this over and over. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, and he had he had confounded them on every count. And so when we get into this passage, um, we see, and it re- it's really helpful, I've mentioned this a few times, to see the, the, the passage that precedes, the parallel passage of this in Matthew, which the passage that precedes it is Matthew 23, where in Matthew 23, um, Jesus issues seven woes against the Pharisees and the scribes. And basically he is like, it's almost like the judge is reading his verdict. And then he makes the statement that he makes uh, that we read last week that their house would be left to him desolate. And then we come to Matthew 24 and Mark 13 where is our main concern and then Luke 21. All of those are parallel passages. And we see that, that Jesus from the Mount of Olives is making a, a, a prediction of the imminent destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which, sure enough, took place, as we've said over and over again, in 70 A.D., just like he said that it would. He'd given a list of the conditions that would precede that event, as well as describing the persecution that his disciples would endure before the temple fell. And both history, from a from a... Uh, non from non-biblical sources, both history and the Bible itself in the book of Acts, tell us it clearly that, that not one of Jesus' words failed. And is that surprising to anybody? Of course not. We've seen how Jesus knew all of the horrible conditions that would accompany the fall of Jerusalem. And he even warned his disciples to get out of the city before its demise. And historically, as I said last week, we know that they did in fact follow his orders. And in so doing, they saw their lives spared from the calamity that, that overtook everyone else in the city. And today though, as we proceeded through Mark 13, we face our greatest interpretive challenge that we've, that we've reached so far. And it's because of one phrase Jesus uses in the passage that Landy read to us when he speaks of his coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, many familiar biblical passages um, about the second coming of Christ, uh, because of those passages, will most of us, many of us, will likely associate this passage with the others that speak of his glorious return. We'll kind of link them together. For example, we might remember how the angels spoke to the disciples immediately following the ascension of Christ. Do you remember what they said? They said to the men who were standing there watching Jesus rise to the, the right hand of the Father in heaven, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, and man, this is an incredible promise for us. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, is anybody excited about that? Anybody looking for that day? You might recall 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, one of the most famous passages on this topic. For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Is that not an incredible promise? Doesn't it make your heart long for that day? Anyone? However, the monkey wrench that gets thrown into the machinery when we try to categorize what we just read this morning with other promises of his return is still the same monkey wrench that we've had from the time we began this study in Mark 13. Do you remember what that is? It's verse 30. What does verse 30 say? Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things Take place. And if I can wax a little mega church charismatic with you, everybody say all these things. That's really important to rightly understand this passage because Jesus says this. He, in verse 30, comes after he speaks of his second or of his appearing in the clouds of glory. And so if this is true, if Jesus lists all these things from the the things preceding the destruction of the temple to his actual coming in clouds of glory. And he says, after, after listing all those things, he then says, all these things will take place before this generation ceases to be. Then if that's true, we only have a few options if we're going to be logically and interpretively consistent. Everybody nervous yet? Okay, just check it. First, we have to consider the possibility, and by the way, many who are dealing with these difficult passages do exactly what I'm about to describe. But we have to ask ourselves, is it the right thing to do? Can we consider the possibility that Jesus applied the term this generation in a very abnormal way? Was he not speaking of this generation to whom he was speaking, but some far distant generation. Not those who is currently speaking, but some people of the distant future. And we've looked at this over and over and over in Mark 13. Was he not speaking in a real historical question, uh, context, answering questions from his disciples that, that had to do with the right now? I think we've established that he has. And therefore, it would be, I think, hard for us to just all of a sudden make a quick change because Jesus says something difficult and defy all sound principles of interpretation. Remember, those are called hermeneutics and ignore two really important parts about hermeneutics. Who was the audience he was talking to and what is the context of everything he said? This is this is during that time of him sitting as judge over all of Jerusalem after the after Palm Sunday after the triumphal entry. So second, if we can't do that, if we can't say well Jesus didn't mean this generation when he said this generation, if we do that, then we also have to go to a much more troubling place. Was Jesus perhaps just wrong? I can feel the uneasiness. I mean, come on. Did Jesus get the first part right about the timing 
of the temple's destruction. Did he get that? Just nailed it detail by detail. Absolutely right. And then just completely with on the prediction concerning the time of his coming. You think that's what Jesus did? Well, listen to me. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Holy Scripture does not allow us to accept that as a reasonable option. Would you agree with me? So what do we do? We have two very, very bad options. Jesus didn't mean what he said, and Jesus was flat out wrong. I can't accept either one of those, can you? So we have to consider a third option. That realistically... Everybody take a deep breath. Realistically, for those of you that come from different perspectives, this might make you super nervous. But we have to consider a third option, that Jesus meant exactly what he said when he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that includes what he says here about his coming in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And there's two things before we dive into what I'm saying here. I can see the, I can see people scratching their heads, some people collecting their Bibles, ready to walk right out of the, out of the room. I get that. I understand it. I've been there. But there's two things we have to remember before we explore this as a viable option. As I have said, over and over and over and over again in this series, that any time you deal with the doctrine of last things, and we call it eschatology, that's the theological term for it, you have to do so with incredible humility. You have to approach these things with incredible humility. You cannot say, I am the one guy that figured it all out, everybody else is wrong. There are people in this room that, well, let me just start off here. In this room right now, not, not in the times past, you know, especially we have visitors here, we have people that went through a new members class today, and, and, uh, I, I don't want to give you any false illusions. Right now in there, in this room, there are people that hold to all four of the major perspectives on the end times. All four of them are represented here right now, and they get along pretty good. So that's a good thing, right? <laughs> But but so you have to have great humility because many godly people, many studious people have come to different conclusions about passages like this. But does that mean, this? we've got to be careful when we say that because we think, well, it doesn't really matter. You can believe whatever you want to believe. No, that's not what I'm saying. Does, am I even saying that we can't know the truth? No, 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 no. Don't listen. Don't hear me say that. Absolutely not. Whenever we approach, and, and Jim did a great job a few weeks ago in our discussion group after church talking about this. Whenever we approach an ambiguous text like this, what do we do? We set aside our preconceptions, we set aside our prejudices, and we begin to unravel that ambiguous text by what in the text is absolutely clear. Does that make sense? We don't try to figure out the clear stuff by the ambiguous stuff. We figure out the ambiguous stuff by what is clear, what's absolutely clear to us. We, we apply a, a consistent set of interpretive schools, uh, uh, interpretive tools rather, like the relevance to the original audience, as I said, the overarching context, which Jesus has had the same context since Matthew 11. So we're th- three chapters into the same context here. And in Mark 13, I hope over the last few weeks, I've made a strong case that Jesus here is talking about events that took place in 70 AD, at least up to this point, at least to where we are in the text right now. And that those events, if I'm right, have deep, deep theological consequence. 
Now, so we have to ask ourselves, when we look at this passage, did Jesus suddenly just jerk the wheel and switch gears and begin talking about something else that's completely different than what he's been talking about? I don't think we can assume that he did. So what do we do with it? And like I said, this direction might make you nervous because most of us have at least been exposed uh, and many of us have believed an entirely futuristic view of this passage. And it's been so ingrained in the modern evangelical mind that we almost remember, uh, we, 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 rather, we must remember that there was a time uh, just uh, less than 200 years ago where no one saw that passage this way. They all saw it as historically fulfilled. I, I, I checked my sources this week, as I've done before. The oldest and most trusted commentators in the history of the post-Reformation church, guys like John Gill, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, Matthew Poole all saw this passage as historically fulfilled, every single one of them. Though some of them, in fairness, did see types or shadows of the second coming in these predictions, they were in agreement that Jesus' primary meaning was pertaining only to AD 70. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if you bought a book in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, some of them massive bestsellers, you were given, you know, breakdowns of how this was all futuristic. And, and, but the, 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 the majority of the church for 1800 years of its 2000 year history said, no, 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 these are talking about things that have been fulfilled. In modern times, this has also been the position of people like the venerable R.C. Sproul, as well as other scholars like Sam Storms and Kim Riddlebarger, guys that I, I trust. And so I'll reiterate once more that it is entirely possible to see the entirety from start to finish of Mark 13 as historically fulfilled without doing any violence. Hear that carefully, those of you who get nervous, without doing any violence whatsoever to an orthodox belief in the return and reign of Christ, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. You can hold both positions that Matthew 13, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, deal with things that have been fulfilled without abandoning the, your belief in the return and reign of Christ, the final judgment, resurrection of the dead. So, anybody in this room ready to actually dive into the text and see how I'm coming to these conclusions? Anybody? One or two? Okay, good. You guys can go home. I'm going to talk to these two that raise their hand over here. All right. Back to verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, once again, the simple reading, the not influenced by, not even by me, but just the simple reading of what Jesus just said shows that he hasn't altered the time frames or the settings of his predictions one bit. He says, what does he begin with? In those days, after that tribulation. What tribulation is he talking about? He's talking about the overthrow of the temple he's just graphically described. 
But if you think that that's, that, that, that could be up for debate, Matthew makes it even clearer than Mark does when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days. He adds that word that we've talked about, that, that uh, youthus, immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Next, if we, if we accept that Jesus has not changed his time frame or, or his context, we have to look at this promise, this bizarre promise that Jesus makes of astronomical signs that happen in the sun and the moon and the stars, shaking of the powers of heavens preceding his coming. Now, the futurist interpretation sees this as describing a literal cosmic cataclysm that precedes the return, or in some cases, the rapture, uh, the, or the return of Christ or the rapture. But we have to realize this is really important. Remember, we're looking for consistency using the same interpretive uh, pa- uh, tools for whatever passage we're looking at. Does that make sense, everybody? I need feedback this morning. I'm nervous enough without your feedback. We have to use the same tools and use and realize that prophetic and apocalyptic literature, I can't talk to this morning, prophetic and apocalyptic literature uses highly symbolic and figurative language to describe something particular in God's word all the time. And anytime there's a mega shift in God's dealing with a people, he always uses the same astronomical cataclysmic language. Can I give you two examples of that? Isaiah 13, God prophesies through Isaiah judgment on Babylon after the conquest of their people. Remember that God, God said that, that Babylon, the Jews would go into exile for 70 years, but he promises in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that when all that's over, he's going to judge Babylon. The, the, Babylon will be judged for the, his, their treatment of his people. And this is what Isaiah it says to describe that day of wrath that is coming on Babylon, historically on Babylon. He says, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Does that sound like anything you just read? Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Now, here's the question. Is there anything historically or even biblically that indicates that these things literally happened when the Medes and the Persians conquered and overthrew Babylon in 539 B.C.? Is there? No. The sun kept shining. The moon still rose. The stars were all in their place in the skies. Not at all. God was announcing through dramatic language He was saying, almost like a simile, it will be like the very heavens are shaken, what I'm about to do. He's announcing that because, he's announcing that things were changing because of sudden judgment coming. And those who were so proud, who had conquered his people and suppressed, and oppressed them, would now themselves be conquered and their pride would be crushed to the ground. And all the nations around them who saw the power of Babylon and feared it, they would not be able to imagine what God was about to do to this mighty nation. It was like the stars fell from the sky. The moon didn't give light anymore. And that's what he sees there. And so Jesus is using the same type of language to describe something that happens. Now, let's let's fast forward to the New Testament. Does this happen in the New Testament? On the day of Pentecost. Peter, if you'll remember, the, the, the Spirit is poured out and all the people of Jerusalem are saying, what is this? What's going on? 
And Peter turns to the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel, to explain to these bewildered Jews what they have just witnessed in the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, usually when you refer to what he, he said from Joel, you usually go to the more positive side of it. You say, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your, your young men will see visions, your old men will have dreams. Everybody gets excited about that. But do you realize that is not all that Joel said? And it's not all that Peter cited Joel as saying. Listen to this, Acts 2.19. This is Peter quoting the prophet Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. What are those signs? Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What are the interpretive challenges of that passage? Well, first of all, what is the great day of the Lord? It's not the day when he squashes the planet like a paper cup and throws it away. The great day of the Lord is the revelation of redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Because he says there, right there, it'll come to pass on that day that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the gospel that was the mega shift in the way God dealt with his people covenantally from the old thing to the new thing. And he's saying it's going to be like everything changes. The entire cosmos is going to change with the with the beauty and the power of the gospel that is going to be established in my new covenant. Now, once again, did those things described by Peter through the mouth of Joel, did they happen on the day of Pentecost? Did the sun turn to blood? This isn't a hard question, did it? Did the moon stop shining? No. Was there blood and fire and vapor of smoke? No. If they did, if those things happened, they've been completely lost to history. No biblical or extra-biblical writer mentions them. And so maybe you consider this, as I said, maybe Peter through Joel was referencing a far distant future event. But that can't be the case if we look at it contextually, because Peter said he's answering a question, what is this? And Peter said, this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He did not say this will be that. He says this is that. Are y'all tracking with me? God was indicating a shift in his covenantal dealings with his people. So on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was employing a style of prophetic utterance that would have been immensely familiar to his disciples with these references to astronomical events. He was signaling that big changes are coming. He was establishing the new covenant and doing away with the old. It was like the stars were falling from the sky. And in all, in the light of all this, and the context that we've tried to establish, whether you agree or not, we've tried to establish it, Jesus says, at this point in the conversation, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so based on everything I've said so far, I don't think that he is speaking of his coming to redeem his bride at the end, which we all hope for. We're all looking for, but he's speaking of his coming in judgment on the, on the Jewish nation, on the entire old covenant system. Now again, this interpretation holds up if we, because you say, no, it can't be, Mark. Jesus says he's coming to do this. 
And Jesus didn't come to do this, okay? All right? Let's look at other Old Testament passages that use similar language. Do you remember what God said to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember that? He said, this is God the Father speaking. He said, I will go down to see whether they have done according to the outcry that has come again up to me. He's saying, I'm going. I'm going to be personally represented when I pour out judgment. Now, did anybody, did the, 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 the Sodomites in Sodom, did they say, oh, look, there's God. God showed up. No. His, his, his appearance was seen in fire and wrath and brimstone. That's how he knew he'd showed up. Do you remember what happened to the Tower of Babel? You remember what he said? He said, come, let us go down. And, and there confused their language. And what happened? He went down. He confused their language. Did anybody in the, in the story, in the scriptures, say that they saw God physically appear? No. No. But he came in judgment. So that that's we could stop right there. We could stop right there. But there's something that is at least of historical note that we should look at. You may believe it. You may not believe it. But... The historian Josephus, who we've referenced a lot in this, who had gave us the best play-by-play, he wrote his history of these this war five years after it happened. It was all still very fresh, and he was compiling all his information after that. And he he so R.C. Sproul in in his commentary on Mark gives us the words of Josephus, who had, remember who had witnessed all this firsthand, and this is what he says. It's a little the language is a little archaic, so just try to stay with me and listen to what he's saying. Josephus, who, you know, we, some people have speculated whether he's a Christian. We have no evidence of that. Uh, but, but still listen to what he said. The, the, so this is, let me set it up. This is, this is the time right before the destruction of the temple. And here's what he says. A few days after that feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it. And were not the events that followed it, the destruction of the temple, of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For, listen carefully, before the setting, before the sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running around, running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Now, pause. Does anybody remember any account in the Old Testament where that happened? Do you? Elisha, his servant, comes out, sees their enemies assembled at their door, and he's terrified. And Elisha prays, God, open their eyes. And what does he see? He sees the armies and the chariots of God surrounding them on every side. So it's at least plausible Then he says, moreover, at the feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. They heard a great noise. And after that, they heard the sound as of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence, meaning Let's move out of the temple. Let's go. Let's, let's depart from the temple. Now, 
You may believe that, you may not. We Most scholars fully believe Josephus is a credible historian. But if that happened from this testimony, could it be that what... What Josephus saw, and the, the people that, that reported this saw, could it be that they saw the, the coming that Jesus spoke of, and that that coming was an appearance in judgment that he had decreed? I think it lines up with the other things that we've looked at, the, the use of astronomical language, the, the talking about coming down. Some of you aren't convinced. That's okay. Because we move from there to even a more difficult passage to interpret if we are saying that Jesus is speaking of things that are fulfilled. Jesus here tells his disciples, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, many have read that and thought because of talk of angels and gathering the elect that this pointed to a rapture of the church or maybe in the second coming that we affirm. But the word translated here, angels, and this isn't the only place. This isn't just an easy interpretive trick to make my my uh, conclusion sound more reasonable. The word translated angel here doesn't necessarily mean heavenly beings. The Greek word is angelos, and angelos can simply mean a messenger. That's all it means, just a messenger. And this is true of other passages where the word angel is used, most notably in the messages to the angels of the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. It's most likely referring to those churches' messengers, their elders, their pastors that are appointed to those churches. So I believe what Jesus is pointing to here has great significance to what we did in collecting an offering to send to the missions. I believe that Jesus is pointing to the great global missionary efforts that will take place after the fall of Jerusalem and that will continue until the end of this age as men and women take the gospel as his messengers, as his angelos. And gather his elect from the four winds of the world to, as Jesus said, I will send you in Acts chapter one to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because we're, we're finding the elect. We're, we're discovering who God has called in our, in our pursuits. It's interesting how we have changed. If I said, uh, to many of you, um, if I said, what is the blessed hope of the church? The blessed hope of the church. Most of you would say, if you've been highly influenced by futuristic, um, you know, interpretations of texts like this, you would say, well, it's the rapture, the rapture, the second coming of Jesus, maybe, is the, the hope of the church. But did you know that, that, uh, the Puritans never saw some escape, some, some departure as the blessed hope of the church. Never. In all of their writings, they saw the God, the proclamation of the gospel around the whole world and, and all that would, would, uh, happen because of that as the blessed hope of the church. They weren't looking for a divine escape. They were advancing as his sanctified armies to bring truth and hope to a world that's in a mess. So I have to ask you a question. Is this how you see the world? Is, is this a world that, in spite of its corruption, in spite of its fallenness, in spite of how tired we all are of hearing of about another school shooting or some perversion that is becoming public policy, is, is this how, do we see the world only defined by its darkness? 
and just can't wait till Gabriel blows his horn and God gets us out of here. So we don't have to mess with it anymore. Or do we see a dark world that presents us with innumerable opportunities to glorify God in the proclamation of the gospel? Are the people of Northridge Life Church his messengers? Are we his angels? Are we his angelos? Jesus concludes the portion we're reading today, beginning in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, here's our verse we've read over and over, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying, you can bank on what I'm telling you. And so therefore, the the two options we considered at the beginning of this message, we have to throw those right out. Jesus didn't get anything wrong, amen? And, and Jesus, you know, it, what, what he says is, is, is as good as done because he said it. Jesus concludes this portion of the text by assuring his disciples of the reliabilities of his words. The reliability of his words. And he also emphasizes the imminence, as we've pointed out over and over and over again, of all he's predicting. He says, 40 years, it's all going to happen. He says that when you... When you walk out into your yard and you see your trees and leaves, Ginger and I have a pear tree that because we live in, in uh, Lubbock, Texas, and the tree's not smart enough to know when the last freeze is, we get uh, pears about every three or four years. But the, but every once in a while we'll see those buds on the on the trees and we say, well, this is a good time because we know what happen, what follows buds. Leaves follow buds. You know what follows leaves? Fruit. And Jesus is saying that when you see your trees in leaf, you expect that fruit isn't far behind, that the leaves anticipate the fruit. Why do you think he gave them so many imminent signs? This will happen. And one by one, one by one, they just fell like dominoes. It's amazing to me how quickly after the resurrection and ascension of Christ that everything he told the disciples that would come to pass began to transpire one right after the other. Worldwide distress, political unrest, famine, etc. Everything he told his disciples would happen to them personally began shortly after the day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. First persecution of the church, Acts chapter 3. Look it up. Arrests, persecution, beatings, betrayals. But armed with his words, armed with his promise of a shifting in the covenants, they did not shrink back. They knew things wouldn't be easy because Jesus had forewarned them. But his words instilled in them an urgency that made them fiery preachers of the gospel to a nation that was breathing its last to a culture that was ending as the covenant was passing away. Is there any 21st century applications in the passionate response of his disciples? Is there? Do we live 
in a nation that could be breathing its last? Do we live in a culture that is committing suicide by all the things they normalize and accept? Do we live in a world where works religion and, and, you know, prosperity gospel and false religions and all those things are proving themselves to be passing away? Oh, my, my heart is that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit to preach like those men, to hang on every word that came from the holy lips of Christ like they did. Is our world in any less jeopardy than that of the Jews? Has God not promised, Acts 17, a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the, God, by the man He has chosen? And yet, don't many of us if we're honest, just pass our days in idleness and self-absorption, toying with the sins over and over again for which our Savior was crucified. Do we make provision for our own lusts as though this world in its present form will continue in perpetuity like we will never die? No. No, church, listen, if you call yourself a Christian, we must be constantly about the business of repentance. We must constantly be holy as He is holy. We must boldly preach. We must teach. We must baptize. We must make disciples until He comes. Jesus' parable of the unjust judge, he finishes this way, speaking to his disciples. He said, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, and this is the question that we must all ask ourselves about ourselves personally. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in your home? Will he find faith at your workplace, at your school? In your relationships, will he find faith? Will he see that what he has said is your main motivating factor for everything you do? Everything that you believe? Everything in which you trust? Everything Jesus said would happen to Jerusalem happened And it happened in the time frame that he said it would. Some were prepared, and they saved their lives by listening to the word. Some preached faithfully and brought the gospel of the new covenant to Jew and Gentile alike. But others, so many others, failed to hear, and they perished miserably. Are you asleep at the wheel when Mark 13 proves that you have every reason to believe every word that comes from the mouth of God? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's stand together. God, we as your people, we repent before you, Lord, for um, the casual nature with which we hear your words. Our half-hearted obedience 
And God, we're convicted looking at the testimony of these disciples who when you told them what was going to happen, they believed you and they, they, uh, God didn't hold the things of this world tightly, but they gave it all up because they knew that something better awaited. They knew that the world in its present form was passing away. So Lord, I pray that you would take one or two of us, three, four, five of us, and stir us with the same passion to take up our cross, to follow you, to be obedient to you, to conform our lives to your will. Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, hear your words, God. God, to make them paramount in our life. God, I pray that you would fill us with a passion to warn those we love, those around whom you have placed us in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, that you would stir in us a passion, Lord, to warn them of the coming wrath. And also, Lord, to invite them to the beauty and the grace and the joy, the forgiveness that's found in the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, make us what you will. Conform us to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If I could have our communion uh, helpers just come and join us up front. Great. Uh, real quickly, while they're getting set up, I just want to mention to you, I know that over the we've spent four weeks in this, and we got one more week to go after Easter in Mark 13, but um, I know a lot of these concepts are, are new to you. I just... Because of that, I, I know sometimes you need some time to digest them. We, on our resource shelf, all of those things are always free. We've put a few of these out. This is from R.C. Sproul, and it's called Are These the Last Days? This is his treatment, not of Mark 13, but of Matthew 24. And uh, you'll see kind of some um, similar condi- uh, conclusions that, that I've shared with you. So I just want to let you know we have about 10 of these, and, and you're, you're welcome to them if you want to grab those and think a little bit more about these things. But as we come to the table of the Lord today, I just, again, I I can only circle back around each week as we've been talking about this, about the amazing thing that has happened, that God has taken something through which righteousness could not be found, a system that only became a, a, a double burden to those who tried to live under it, and he completely brought it to a crashing end so that he could bring us into a new covenant with better promises, a covenant of grace. And that is exactly what he said. Do you remember what the words of institution we read every week says? He says, this is the, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's not sealed for you by the blood of bulls and sheep and goats. It's shed by the, it's sealed by the perfect shed blood of Jesus spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so this should be a moment of praise. It should be a moment of rejoicing as we come and we say, I am a part of that covenant. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to come and receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and and, um, we'll take them together in a moment. If you're not a believer in Jesus, 
Put your trust in Christ. What are you waiting for? If you have questions, come see me after the service, and I'll be glad to answer those questions for you. If you're not a believer, stay in your seat, but know that we are praying for you. We're not excluding you. We are praying that you will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit to invite you into his covenant and to his table. The rest of you, come on, and let's uh, let's prepare to receive this this uh, these elements. Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's just give thanks for what God has done. Lord, we thank you. You are the God from whom all blessings flow. Not the least of those blessings is the covenant that you have invited us into, sealed by the Holy Spirit, given to us by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we we thank you for that. We thank you that you have rescued us. You've redeemed us from the terms of the old covenant and given us a new, eternal, better covenant, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lastly, if you would place your hands in a receiving position, I could not think of a better benediction. Don't think I've ever used this for the benediction before, but this is what I have for you this morning. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.